Hello, welcome to Bookshelves. Before we get underway with this week's episode, uh, just remind you that Bookshelves is at the Albert Hall Science and Science Fiction Authors for episodes, uh, and uh, our first announced guest is Lucy Green. Uh, there are more that will be announced over the next couple of months, and we're recording at the Albert Hall on June the 4th and June the 11th. We also have to say thank you and welcome to all our new Patreon supporters who've uh, joined us and pledged in the last week since we launched the new tiered reward system on Patreon. You can check that out at patreon.com slash bookshambles. Lots of stuff that you can uh, get involved with there. Extended episodes, behind the scenes videos, uh, exclusive early access to stuff. We're going to have a a book club with Robin and Josie that you can join. Uh, You can even be a guest on Book Shambles. You get to come into the studio, you can hang out with us for a bit and then go into into our studio and record a, a, a mini episode with Robin and Josie. So check that out, patreon.com slash bookshambles or cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles. And if you are a current Patreon supporter or you have have been one in the past and you want to make sure you get those new rewards, you should have got a direct message from us on Patreon in the last week as well that will take you through a couple of easy steps just to make sure that you are in that right reward tier. But don't worry, you don't have to, it doesn't up your pledge, you don't have to pay any more, any more admin fees, nothing like that. Everything stays the exact same financially, you're just going to get more for your pledge. So uh, check your inbox on Patreon uh, to find out how to do that if you've not already. Now, earlier this year, uh, in uh, early January, unfortunately, Josie was... Or fortunately, Josie was all in America doing big shows. <laughs> and <laughs> so I was left alone to talk to Andy Weir. I know, but it makes it seem like I was doing all kinds of you were. glamorous stuff. And... Well, it was cool, wasn't it? It was fun. Exactly. Do some geeks. What makes glamour? That's true. Mm. Anyway, so I did a, a, um, a book shambles with Andy Weir. Have you read any of that? Have you seen The Martian? No, still not. Yeah. I heard it's fantastic. So it's got what? some lovely disco in it. Well, I thought you were going to say discourse, but no. There is some discourse. <laughs> the, uh, I, 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 I would challenge most uh, British people for Doctor Who love. Uh, the, I, uh, I've seen all of the episodes. I mean, like, starting from an unearthly child, the, you know... All the Hartnell era, everything. I loved the Christmas special because it was just... Oh, so you're up to date. You've seen... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Very much looking forward to Jodie Whittaker. Whittaker? Yeah, it is Jodie Whittaker, yeah. Whittaker. Okay, yes. uh, Because I never uh... saw Broadchurch, so I I don't... I mean, but I'm, I'm very excited to have a female doctor. By the way, we're talking already. Just we, oh. we've started. We're, we're on. We've this started. Is, uh, uh, I think that's the right place to come in. All right, uh, let's do this. We're going to be talking about science and science fiction. So already we've started talking about the Christmas special of Doctor Who because we're recording this early January. I'm with uh, Andy Weir, who is uh, well best known as the author of The Martian, and now has a new book out, a uh, new novel, Artemis, as well. You just this is a great thing about. Um, with the Jodie Whittaker thing, uh-huh. I don't know if you saw it. There, there, there seemed to be some stirring uh, about the fact that uh, oh, can you really have a female Doctor? Who? But you go, well, yeah, it's a science fiction you... universe. Well, first off, uh, I mean, yeah, some people just don't like change. Okay, and um, I, time lords are not humans, right? They're literally periodically their body turns into fluid and completely remakes itself into something else. I don't see any reason why you if you if you can change from like an Englishman into a Scotsman, then I don't see why you can't change from a man into a woman. And um, also the master had already done so earlier in the series. So they they kind of I think they were testing the waters at that point when they had the master uh, become Missy, which was brilliant. Yeah, that well. was brilliant. It was a it was a really awesome reveal when we found that out. Uh, anyway, for the benefit of your listeners, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan in um, when people ask me the question, like, "Oh, what do you, you know, Star Wars or Star Trek?" I always answer Doctor Who. It's I've loved it since I was a kid uh, because we used to get it in the U.S. Um, on our PBS stations, and uh, that was the first thing I saw. The first time I went to New York when I was nineteen years old, and I thought, "I wonder what American TV would be like." And it must have been two in the morning. And I turned on, and it was a TV sitcom called "Man About the House." Uh, well, followed no. by Genesis of the Daleks. <laughs> so that that well, was, which I know, Man About the Man House had became the Three's re- Company. Yeah, right. And then and then uh, followed by one about the Daleks. Huh? Yeah. So that, do you remember I, I which like, one? 
It, it was it was Genesis of the Daleks. Genesis which of the is, Daleks, is, the fourth Doctor, and it was the first episode that had Lala Ward starring Romana. No. No? No. Genesis of the Daleks? No, Genesis of the Daleks is uh, Elizabeth Sladen still. Uh, um, oh, no. Yeah, no, What's you're the one where they of, go to Scarrow? Are you thinking of Destiny of the Daleks? Uh, that's not the... The, oh. the one where well, they're anyway, fighting the villains? Anyway, hi. No, yeah, Genesis of <laughs> the Daleks is the first one with Davros. Oh, okay. Yeah, I still thought... Okay, well, anyway. Anyway, so now now we were going to be talking about space exploration, but we're going to have an hour-long argument over You will trump me on most things. No, one no, no, but I think you're, 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 you're right. Because the first one with Davros is when they go there and there's the Khaleds, and, uh, right? Is yeah. That, and there's the two domes that are at war. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I was thinking of a different one. It is the, it's the, it's the one with the most kind of fascist iconography. Yes, I think, very think much so. Very, very not subtle. <laughs> well, as someone who is, I, I, I know you started reading, reading science fiction from a very early age. That go, staying on Doctor Who just briefly for me, one of the great things about something like Doctor Who is for outsider kids, for those ones that might be, you know, to use the word, the nerdier ones. It <laughs> was this incredible life belt, and I think that's oh, why absolutely. there's something different to it to Star Wars or Star Trek. There was something about Doctor Who where I think of many of the names that have, you know, when, when Mark Gatiss. From you know Sherlock and and League of Gentlemen and you know Mark some of Mark's early work was writing Doctor Who adaptations when Doctor Who wasn't on television. It had been for him and for the people he worked with. You know all of those horror obsessed kids. <laughs> it was this special thing. You know I, I still know there are kids who uh, this generation of kids who at school they don't fit in, but when they find there's another kid who's into Doctor Who, it's kind of like okay now we're in yeah yeah we can talk. Yeah, and I didn't have that because in America, I mean, it was extremely rare to find another Doctor Who fan, aside from the ones that I had evangelized it to and spread it out. But, I mean, in the U.S., it's pretty much uh, that's what you get with, like, Star Trek or something like that. You find fellow Trekkies who are nerds, and, you know, it's like uh, those of us in the chess club and the math club in high school would uh, would have discussions about, you know, whether Kirk or Picard was a better captain. But, uh I didn't have anybody to argue about who the best doctor was. The correct answer is Peter Davison, by the way. Ah, you see, now that yeah. shows that you're three years younger than me, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. and therefore. You, you always imprint on your first doctor, of course, you know, like a like a duckling on its mother. And and uh, Peter Davison was the doctor when I first started watching. So Well, his, his regeneration is the nearest until we have the modern series of that kind of style. You know now, where every time they regenerate, they do this kind of, I don't want to go. Oh, uh, what's no. going on? Oh, no, no, yeah. please. You know, where, yeah. whereas before, you know, in the early days, it was just an Englishman lying down and going, hang on a minute, something's happened. <laughs> <laughs> I've regenerated into someone with, with a little penny whistle. What's going on? Yes. <laughs> and then Peter Davison is the first time that there's a certain level of kind of emoting about the departure yeah. and, and a sense of death. Good point. Yeah. Well, he was like laying down and he's like, oh, and he's having these like hallucinations of various companions and, and stuff like that. When when Peter Davison regenerated in, into Colin Baker. Yeah. Yeah, it goes. Uh, we won't talk about that. Th- then his the first lines of Colin Baker, as we know, are now considered to be some of the most disastrous uh, in terms you know, of introducing people. And I just uh, it was the writing. I mean, Colin Baker. If you, if you rewatch him, and I've seen every episode of Doctor multiple times, I'm that level of dork. If you rewatch the Baker era shows, he does a very good job mm. with the material he was given. And so I, I, I won't I, I won't hear a bad word about Colin Baker. Oh, like, I, don't, I, I agree. Yeah. I don't think it's his acting. I think the fact that they decided to make him this this curt, you know, he, right. he pops up straight away. But you seem very self-obsessed woman or whatever. It's like, and, whoa. Three eyes in the first sentence. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think uh, the long term plan back then was they were going to have him have a character development arc over time where he softens up and becomes and they were going to they were shooting for a much more complicated character and then have slow character development over time uh but then um that all kind of got screwed up uh partially because of uh you know costuming choices makes it very hard for you to take him seriously i mean he looked like a parrot exploded on his suit and then also because um uh then there was the BBC strike which uh curtailed an entire season and they had to kind of pastiche together the trial of a time lord anyway we could probably talk about Doctor Who all day it is an interesting change though in the I was thinking about um Elizabeth Sladen who would have been uh you know Sarah the the, the first assistant that I uh had a kind of you know you, a crush you just, on no not a crush it was before that you, you are just, lying you just so cool you are lying so much 
No, I'm probably blushing now. No, if you're was... male and heterosexual, you had a crush on Sarah Jane Smith. It's as simple as that. I, I, yeah. It was, but when she leaves, I'm going to skim over that now. Um, when, when, when she, she the, the difference between now in the series, there will be when any character leaves, there's a lot of soul searching, a possible death, maybe dying or not dying, actually okay. There's tears. Elizabeth Sladen is just dropped off back in and Croydon like, and then and kind like, of goes, hang on a minute, is this actually where I live? <laughs> this is and, not and, even my home. And, and the Doctor's just leaning against <laughs> that rather wonderful uh, interior design of, of the TARDIS, the, uh, the kind of Victorian... The auxiliary, the auxiliary console room. Of yeah. course, that's the yeah. correct terminology. And it might the, not be, but... No, I, <laughs> I, I think we'll accept that with uh, <laughs> over my Victoriana description. And... But what I, I think is rather delightful about it is even though there are no words and there's no lingering shot, Tom Baker within that split second, still you get some sense mm-hmm. that um that this is a major departure and split between him and yeah. Sarah Jane. I could be wrong, but I believe she was the longest serving companion. Like uh I think she was the, the companion who was in more episodes than any other companion, I believe. I could be wrong. Well, do you know what? You you will have got used to by now uh, with your books having people write to you go, actually, one of the things that you got wrong about potatoes. Oh, oh you yeah. know, this. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, we were talking a bit about this before we uh, uh, started taping. Um, uh, yeah, you, you, you get a lot of that where people are like, you know, dear sir, I'm thoroughly disgusted that you did not get this, you know, triple integral quite correctly. Um, uh, but... I have no problem with that because I bring it on myself. Um, I come out and I say, like, hey, here's a book I wrote. It's science fiction, and I am telling you that all the science in it is accurate. By me making that claim, that invites all the criticism and the and the pedantry and 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 whatever else. So I I I deserve to be told whatever errors I've made, no matter how small. Now, I would be kind of annoyed if I wrote, like, a Star Trek novel or a, or, or a Doctor Who novel and people started nitpicking the physics. I'd be like, look, <laughs> you know. Is, is that, though, in, in terms of science fiction, that the, the rule is as long as the universe you have created continues to ha- have have its rules and its laws. Yeah. Consistency. Yeah, the consistency of your universe. Because I, I would agree. I think that thing that people then go, well, actually, with time travel or whatever, you go, look, do you know what? From the moment we're having a time travel novel, we know that current physics says, yeah, yeah going ahead is fine. Going back is impossible. So the moment you're going backwards, we're playing around with the laws of physics and we're pretending we're creating a universe with different laws. Yeah, if somebody rejects your one... Con- yeah, any story, any, any you know, if there's a science fiction story that's built around one MacGuffin, you you get to have one conceit. You get to have like at least one thing that violates every known law of physics if you're going to do that, because the you, the reader will accept that. The reader will say like, "Oh, you have a time machine. Okay, you have a DeLorean that goes back in time. Okay, great." Um, they accept that, but then they'll start nitpicking on you know. There's all the temporal paradox stuff that comes up in any in any time travel story, but as long as you're consistent about whatever rules you've set up, the readers will forgive you anything. So I like I'm also a Star Trek fan. I'm a Star Trek fan, not exclusively Doctor Who. And um, so I love Star Trek. And they've got, you know, warp drives. They can go faster than light. Well, you know, you can't in real life. You literally can't. I believe that barrier will never be broken. You can have as much uh, quantum uh, entanglement talk as you want. I still don't believe that you can have causality travel faster than light in any way. Um, That having been said, I watched Star Trek. I'm like, warp drive, sure, no problem. Accepted, thoroughly. But then there's an episode where they're going from Mercury to Earth, you know, and it takes them a while. And I'm like, no, 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 no. If you can travel warp nine, which is like over 100 times the speed of light, it's not going to take you very long to get from Mercury to Earth. (laughs) But is there a problem there with the braking system? When you're dealing with speeds that fast, to actually go such a, a small distance well, uh, that you go, you, oh, for heaven's sake, you've gone, we've overshot again. Excuse me, sir, but if you were, if you were more educated on how warp manifolds work, you would realize that they actually take themselves out of real space and go into warp, and there is no speed up or slow down. Right. Okay, but they, can you now for impulse can we power, be that specific? 
on in terms of I mean because that's what I think perhaps Star Trek well, misses is we learned from another constantly we're at the wrong planet again. Well, no, I, well, we learned from another episode of Star Trek that called the Picard maneuver, where you can go actually you can warp forward just a few hundred meters and appear to be in two places at once, sir. So <laughs> I think it's very very clear. That, yeah. <laughs> no, I could do this all day. I mean, I I am the kind of reader that I invite to. I, I am every bit as bad as all the people we're talking about. I, I'm one of those people. I'm too lazy to actually write the authors, but it's there in the back of my head. I'm like, hmm. So what were the biggest problems? Let's start. We'll, we'll move on to, to, to Artemis, which is, is close to home. But before we get to the moon, let's go a little bit further. With, with The Martian, you know, how many times did you find yourself getting to a point where you thought i need something to change now i need you know a, a, a plot point ah, is the science gonna be mm-hmm. you know up there with what is necessary for the adventure i in almost all cases i would i would say like no i'm not willing to break the rules of, of science i'm going to go find a way that doesn't violate the rules of physics or anything like that but there are a couple of places where i deliberately broke the rules uh, one of them is the main conceit of the story in the first place. A sandstorm of that magnitude could not happen on Mars. Um, Mars does get uh, winds of uh, up to like 150 kilometers an hour, but the atmospheric pressure on Mars is less than 1% of Earth's atmospheric pressure. So if you were standing on the surface of Mars in one of those big storms, it would barely feel like a gentle breeze to you because the inertia behind it is so low. It would have a difficult time knocking over a piece of paper, let alone a you know, 27 metric ton spacecraft. So I knew that was true. And I had considered an alternate beginning where um, they're doing an engine test on their ship and there's a problem and then they end up having to launch and stuff like that. But it's a man versus nature story and I wanted nature to get the first punch in. So I made that deliberate concession. I'm like, yep, this is going to be wrong, but nobody knows this. And then now everybody knows this because The Martian was very popular. And so everybody needs to make sure that (laughs) I've inadvertently educated a lot of people about the atmosphere of Mars. But that's one of the I think that that is a good thing that when you're again, we were mentioning before we start recording this a little bit about Kip Thorne and the journey of Interstellar and why that film, you know, existed out of the fact that two people meet. And I think it was shortly after Carl Sagan's contact movie had come out and going, we want to make the because I think Carl Sagan, I might be wrong on this, but I think he was unhappy with the uh the the that that final sequence of of, of the journey yeah in contact i'm that it shows you how ignorant i am i didn't realize that he had survived long enough to see the film version the jody foster movie he right? would he would have uh, the, i'm trying to think i think he would have been working on the film version but we'll double, we'll double check on the date of it because it's 1997 isn't it i think that he died I th- it, um, he died in 97 um uh, I don't know when Contact came out. I, we will double check. We have a, a, the, 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 the screen of knowledge, which we keep in the corner of the room. <laughs> yeah, very uh, good. And, well, I but, assume you're right. because No, no, no. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. assume. I never assume I'm never right. Assume um, it's uh, you know, always start with this. I mean, that's that's part of the, the fun, I think, though, of these ideas, of things like Interstellar, of, of perhaps to a lesser extent a film like Gravity, uh, of a novel like The Martian, which is because you're being told this is a, pretty close to the way science is it means that people then first of all are lured into reading more getting on the internet buying books buying a telescope wanting to look <laughs> at mars through the you know all of these things you know fiction is a lure and i think as you said as well yeah every now and again you can be a little bit loose with the science but that will only then be an entry into people actually finding out the real science mm-hmm. Yep, there's a uh, there's a minor combinatoric math error in artemis that i've been emailed about I don't know, a couple of hundred times now. <laughs> uh, so we're being told by our... Uh, the screen of knowledge. By the screen of knowledge. That, yeah, he he saw an early cut. Carl Sagan did see an early cut of the film. So I but think, it, I he think had, it, yeah. He had, he had passed away um, uh, six months before the movie came out, apparently. We're being told by We're our, told by the screen of knowledge. By, but it's... by the magical screen. But this is... Um, so with with the, um, the, the Martian, what do you... 
why was that? I mean, I presume you've, you've gone through quite a few other stories before. You know, this is it, it is a oh, great story about the fact well, that, you. you know, it's four years ago since uh, the book was published when we were recording this. It's, there's only four year gap between now The Martian. Everyone knows about The Martian. It's a best selling novel. It, it, you know, a hugely successful and, and, and loved film. And that's all in the space of four years. But I presume you'd gone through quite a few other plots in your head. Before oh, yeah. You'd, you know, so in terms of playing around with, was it always, I presume it's always been science fiction that you've been been working on in your head mostly i mean i've I've had ideas for crime novels and i've had well artemis is kind of a you know science fiction and crime novel uh and i've had some fantasy novel ideas but really it's all about science fiction and uh the kind of narrative of my story that people seem to believe is that i i I was a software engineer and then one day i went dunka dunka dunk and wrote a novel and then i'm suddenly incredibly successful what they don't talk about is the 20 years of me writing books before that (laughs) that weren't any good (laughs) so you know you have to put in your time Yeah, it, it, if if a novelist is in their forties, it's highly unlikely that they've only just started. Yes, writing novels, right, isn't yes. it? It is. I mean, D- David Keenan, who's who's written a very different novel called "This Is Memorial Device," which is uh, a kind of fictionalized version of the uh, early eighties um, alternative music scene in Airdrie in Scotland. Yeah, you know, I, I spoke to him a while ago, and he his first novel he wrote and then immediately destroyed <laughs> because he just knew it would be rubbish. So he literally he did it merely as the act to write a thing <laughs> and not even think should i send it to faber and faber or Transworld? just going and now into the fire and my, that's one of the hardest things i think for people to grasp isn't it which oh, is yeah. my my first novel was horrid it was uh terrible i there is only one surviving copy to my knowledge and it's in my mother's possession and she won't tell me where it is um but yeah no i would burn that if i could find it as well i mean it's just like after I wrote it, I, I'm like, well, I'm done, and this is crap, and uh, so I'm not even going to show it to anybody. <laughs> that is, and in the um, with, with the why was it? Why do you think it was that that the Martian just it came together in your head, and you you? I mean, it's it's something which is it's timeliness is is fantastic you know at the moment when we hear you know various people you know including you know elon musk and we see what spacex are doing uh and you know we we see all of those other private projects with this fantastic you know for once it actually almost does seem that when people say we'll be on mars in 20 years time we really might be on mars in 20 years time, or certainly flying around it and having you know <laughs> yeah. a close look um i'm not sure you know i it's one of those things like uh, if if you can uh, give me a, a definitive list of what I did right on The Martian, I will give you $10,000 because I really don't know what I did right. Uh, I just wrote a story that at the time I thought was I was writing for a small select group of hardcore science fiction dorks like myself who actually want the math to be spelled out in a story. I never imagined it would have mainstream appeal. I mean, it's basically a collection of algebra word problems. And I I I. I, I, I just have to say it again. I don't know what I did right. Uh, I guess people liked the humor a lot, and they liked the – you can't help but empathize with the person in a, in a person versus nature story. You know, when you're, when, you're, when you're watching a movie or reading a book, whatever, about, you know, cops and robbers kind of thing, a part of you – or maybe not you, but me – a part of me roots for the villains. I root for the antagonist because I know that in the end they're going to be defeated, and so I kind of feel bad for them. Mm. And also, I like a good clever antagonist. I like I like it. You know, I kind of get annoyed at heroes because they're a little too self-righteous sometimes. And I'm like, you know what? I like you get knocked down a peg by this antagonist, you know, stuff like that. But when you're reading a, you know, person versus nature story, nobody roots for nature. It's like, yeah, I hope that guy starves. You know, it's, yeah, nature's changed. get him Mars. In, in the yeah. 1970s, nature was always uh, aggressive animals that had mutated, wasn't it? There was that. That was a big genre <laughs> of. Uh, I used to talk a lot about the giant killer crab novels of a, a, a writer <laughs> called Guy N. Smith. But a, a, a friend of mine, Neil, gave me just a whole bookshelf of 1970s New English Library books. All of which were about grizzly bears that had had some kind of man had been meddling with nature. You know, all of that thing, I suppose, inspired from things like H.G. Wells, Food of the Gods. And (laughs) and in terms of the the, the shoulders of giants that you you stand on, who are those, the science fiction novelists, the short story writers who have created the world that allows something like The Martian to exist? Oh, well, for me, uh, I mean, my holy trinity are Asimov, Heinlein and Clark. Like those are those are the authors that I read growing up, even though I'm not 
Uh, so I read my father's science fiction collection. He had all the books that he's ever bought. He was a sci-fi dork all his life. He is still. He's fine. Don't worry. Um, and um, so he had this huge uh, bookshelf just jam-packed through, full of the, well, I, I don't know if you use the same term in, in the UK. We call them juveniles because the, the target audience was like, you know, teenagers. And it's just like these these good old-fashioned space adventure stories, you know. And, I mean, you get to the halfway point in the book, and there's a glossy advertisement for Kent cigarettes. Like, that's it's the, these books are published in, like, 1954 kind of thing. And so I, I, I grew up reading those. And so that's kind of what set for me uh, the, 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 the tone of what science fiction should be. And those guys uh, are the ones who really created the science fiction genre. I mean, you can you can go back to H.G. Wells and Jules Verne and stuff like that, but mainstream, commercially successful science fiction novels, like the the first times that a the first time that bookstores had a science fiction section in them is because of those guys. Do you feel that because I've I've talked to a few uh, science fiction writers and some publishers as well, which is science fiction is. Still, perhaps look down on a little. But it has. I mean, things have changed. You have people like Margaret Atwood, who is, you know, critics cannot reject her. Her, you know, the, the imaginative fictions that she she creates. Sure. And but it, it feels. Do you feel that th- I, I get a sense that it's moved on now, and actually you can. Oh, what's. Oh no, that's right. They're talking about how to uh, do the ventilation system. It's fine. Yeah, oh, I did. Okay. I, the gesticulation can be distracting. Yeah, well, you, I wasn't just, sure if they were trying we to get th- our attention. Uh, I ignore them. Ignore good. them always. That's probably going to get cut out. So you want to run up on uh, Margaret the, Atwood that, again? That that will stay. Okay. Um, it's all it's all real. Um, Fair th- but science fiction now, I'm beginning to get the sense that it really people are going. Do you know what? This is not just some sub genre which should not be considered to have the same worth as a novel about. A you know a, a New York novelist dealing with his father's dementia, right? I mean, like, well, for me, I, I have a more dare I say controversial view. Um, it's not very controversial, but uh, my view is that science fiction is not a genre at all. It's a setting. So it, science fiction is no more a genre than Chicago. It's like you can have a science fiction love story, you can have a science fiction horror story, a science fiction thriller, or science fiction mystery. I mean, so. It's like if you can have literally all those different kinds of things happen in science fiction, then how can science fiction be considered a genre? So to me, it's just a setting. So The Martian was a science fiction survival story. I mean, Robinson Crusoe is like the first adventure story ever written. And and that's, you know, so it's not a new concept, right? Mm. The idea of surviving uh, difficult elements. But it's just The Martian is that in science fiction. Artemis is a science fiction crime heist caper novel. Now, Artemis, you've moved closer to home. Mm-hmm. We're, we're now only as, as far as the moon. Right. Uh, which makes me think you are going to be writing that New York novel that's just, right. you know, yes. you're, you're nearly <laughs> yes. back home now. Yes. <laughs> um, but the, this this is a, a very different in terms of what it's allowed you to build, because mm. th- this is your this is a much bigger architectural project, isn't oh. it? First of all, Great you, 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 you are built. So can you just run through a little bit of of you, you have you have created here the, the, the city, the first city beyond the planet Earth? Right. Um, the first city, the first human city that's not on Earth. And um, so the first thing I had to do was before I started imagining what the city would look like was ask, what is what for what economic reason does this city exist? Every city on Earth exists for some economic reason. Um, it, that reason may have changed over time since the city was founded and stuff like that. But people don't just go somewhere and hang out together and form a city for no reason. They have to have a reason. And so I, I went through a lot of uh, the, a lot of the standard sci-fi tropes of like why there's a moon city don't sit well with me. They're like, oh, there's val- there are valuable resources on the moon that we need to mine, like helium three or something. And to which I say, well, send robots. It's like people don't care if a robot dies; they really do care if Uncle Chuck dies, right? So why would you risk human lives to collect resources on the moon and bring them back to Earth? So I kind of reject that one. The other one is. Oh, people are fleeing political oppression on Earth to go start their own society on the moon, sort of an analog of the Puritans coming to the New World, right? Well, I'll tell you what, if you can afford to go to the moon, you're not the oppressed people, all right? <laughs> you're, you're, you're not the oppressed. 
And then uh, other things like population, pressure, forces people to the moon. Well, then colonize the ocean or the Sahara or Antarctica. Literally any place on Earth is easier to colonize than any place on the moon. And then so basically I had to find out, like, what is a reason why there are humans living on the moon? And my answer was tourism. Uh, by its very nature, are humans going places? And since humans, humans are a crazy group of lunatics, if you think about it, people are like, I want to go climb Mount Everest. And so they do. It's like, good God, what is wrong with you? But they do. People like to go to remote places. And uh, so Artemis, the conceit in Artemis, the main conceit is that the commercial space industry has driven the price to low Earth orbit low enough that middle class people can afford like a once in a lifetime vacation into space. And uh, once you can get out of Earth's gravity, going to the moon is actually not that much more difficult. It's... Um, it is costlier, but it's not. It is much harder to get from Earth's surface to Earth orbit than it is to get from Earth orbit to the Moon's surface. And so, I said, like, all right, there's an economy here. You can have middle class people who would go to the Moon. So Artemis is a city that is built about 40 kilometers away from the Apollo 11 landing site, which would obviously be a big tourism draw. There's a visitors center there and a gift shop, you know, and then. Um, and uh, then there's just a bunch of other fun stuff you can do. There's casinos. It's it's sort of a almost lawless city because the moon is international waters from a legal perspective. So it's the same as being on a cruise liner out in the ocean. Anything you could do on a cruise liner, you could do there. There's gambling. There's prostitution, if that's your thing. Um, and then there are the people who live and work there. So I base the whole economy off of the uh, kind of Caribbean resort town economies that you see on earth there's the kind of swanky hotels and the really nice casinos and stuff and then there's the more austere conditions that the people who live and work there uh you know reside in and so i had a lot of fun working that out working out the economy then i had even more fun working out uh, the like science behind okay how do you actually build a city on the moon it's not unreasonably expensive to ship things there but you can't ship I don't know what the mass of a city is, but something in the millions of tons range, right? You can't just ship all that there. So you need to make use of local resources. Well, um, which brings me to the next awesome thing is that the moon is so well suited to using local resources to make a city that if I were to create a fictional planet that was that convenient, you would not believe me. You would, you would call me out and say that's too much suspension of disbelief. But the moon... The lunar highlands, which are the bumpy parts of the moon, are about 85% of the rocks there are a mineral called anorthite. Anorthite is made of aluminum, silicon, calcium, and oxygen. So you smelt that, which means you separate those into their base components, and you have aluminum to build your city with and oxygen to fill it with. It's like the moon is just made of moon bases. It's just some assembly required. It's incredibly convenient. And then I'm like, oh, okay, so how much energy does it take to smelt anorthite? Oh, my God, all the energy. It is very happy being anorthite. There's a reason those rocks have been just sitting there for four and a half <laughs> billion years without any change. They're very content. So then I'm like, all right, solar panels won't do. I need reactors. Then, you know, and so you start build. I start building up from there. You need reactors and a smelting facility that makes the aluminum. You're going to want your uh, your main pressure vessels to be spheres because that's the most efficient pressure vessel. A sphere, however, is kind of hard to stand up. So half of it will be underground that way. And, and, and Artemis ends up looking like a, a 1950s novels version of a moon base. It looks like a bunch of domes out on the, on the lunar landscape. And then after I designed the whole city, how they deal with their, their import-export economy, their tourism economy, the details of how the hulls work, how life support works, everything like that, then I reluctantly had to make a plot and characters. <laughs> <laughs> so it started with it, it started with the building project. Absolutely. Before the people. That's World the... building is always a lot more fun than actual storytelling. And um, I went through many revisions of stories that all, like I had Artemis, the city. I had it down pat. I knew exactly what it looked like and how it operated. But I had to go through a bunch of different plot ideas before I found one that wasn't stupid. And I was interested as well, your, your lead character, Jazz, originally wasn't a lead character. Was, right. And you, you uh, I was reading, yeah, explain a little bit about yeah. your interest in doing this. Well, the first revision of, our, so the main character in Artemis is uh, a woman named Jasmine Bashara, who was born in Saudi Arabia, and she and her father moved to Artemis when she was just six years old. 
So culturally, she's Artemisian. She uh, doesn't have much of the original Saudi culture. It's just kind of like a second generation immigrant, you know, family kind of thing. It happens everywhere there's immigration. Um, but uh, she uh, was originally in the first plot revision that I had in mind for Artemis was nothing like the book is now. And um, I had need of a kind of likable rogue character, a smuggler. And so I created Jazz just on the spot. I said, well, uh, what's a country I haven't used yet? Because Artemis is a very international kind of uh, city. What's a country I haven't used yet? Uh, Saudi Arabia. Okay, and we'll make it a woman. Why not? And we'll give her a cool name like Jazz. Yeah, that's neat. And so, and that was it. And she was in like two or three scenes in this kind of outline that I made. And then that story didn't work, though. Uh, it just wasn't, I didn't like the way that was working out, so I ditched it. And then I made a, a, a different story, completely different concept. I stole characters from the first concept as needed and minor plot lines from it, but that, and then, but it was a very, very unique. And in this one, um, uh, Jazz was a little more prevalent. She was a little more, more central, but still very much a secondary character. So she ended up getting a little bit more definition, like, okay, she came when she was six, and and her father's a welder, and, you know, so a little bit more definition, but not a lot. And then I decided, uh, this this story also sucks. Uh, but I realized that Jazz is actually a pretty interesting character. And so I thought, well, what if I made a story about her? That would make it like a crime caper novel, and I like those. That's probably my second favorite genre. And so I said, like, okay, I'm going to do that. And by that time, the character of Jazz was so cemented in my mind as, like, a woman— who was born in Saudi Arabia and grew up on the moon and stuff like that, that if I'd tried to change her to something more familiar to me, like a man, you know, I, my imagination just would have rebelled. At every point, I would have been fighting myself on writing it. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to write a first-person narration by, from a Saudi woman. You know, write what you know, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I, I read one interview where you were talking about the, the problem you often have with lead characters and perhaps why Jazz has, has became your lead is that the, the lead characters very often have no edges, really. The, the, the sidekicks, and as you were saying, Jazz was, yeah. was more going to be, they're, they're the ones who have the quirks and the foibles and whatever. They're and, fun. and quite often we have just the, the rugged square jaw is, you know, is, is, is the, the person leading. Yeah. Um, uh, I've always thought that uh, Jimmy Olsen is way more interesting than Superman, right? You, the 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 perfect in, in, infallible hero archetype is a boring character. That's why the sidekicks are usually more fun, especially the ones that are a little shady, like the ones who like kind of want to, you know, make a quick buck kind of thing. Those those are the really likable characters. And so my main characters tend to be the characters who, in other books, would have been sidekicks. Like Mark Watney is just kind of the comic relief of a crew. Like, it, you know, in an, in another world, that would have been a story about Commander Lewis and mm -hmm. Mark Watney would have shown up once in a while to make a smart ass remark. But I like the smart ass. <laughs> the, uh, I suppose that's in some ways why superheroes, you know, they've, they've tried to change them, haven't they? No longer are they merely invincible. Like, I suppose it starts with Marvel's neurotic, you know, teenagers, <laughs> you know, radioactive teenagers. Or radioactive yes. where, where it's, and, and so you end up with these, I have to admit, I'm not a big fan. of. I, I've had enough now of the father issues of various different uh, yeah. superheroes. Yeah. Um, well, and they've tried to make them go, go, oh, don't worry. They're not happy. Yeah, I mean, right. sure, they've got X-ray vision and they can fly in this. Yeah. But you know what? There's another side to this guy as well. Yeah. Well, Iron Man, you know, I mean, like Tony Stark is pretty happy. I mean, he's got his own daddy issues, I guess. But uh, but uh, yeah, uh, the, the thing that I'm sick of in in terms feel is really overdone is dystopian misery nightscape nightmare scape futures where it's like, oh, OK. So in the future, I mean, and there's this whole category of, of series that are like this. It's like, OK, in the future, the world is like really crappy. It's all about like this massive wealth divide. And the only the only people who can save us are a plucky group of teenagers who are like also gorgeous. And teenagers played by like 28 year olds, you know, and I, I'm just like, I don't like that story. I also don't buy the dystopian future model. I'm a fairly optimistic guy in life. And I also believe that uh, humanity, just the world gets better consistently century after century. And all these dystopian things are often like kind of very technophobic. 
views of the future and that just like any technology, well, the only way it'll ever be used is to make life worse. And to, to which I, I, I would challenge anybody to say like, okay, pick any year, any year in history, okay? Then imagine 100 years before that year. Which of those two years would you rather live in? And I'm going to say about 99% of the time you would pick the latter year. So you're more Stephen Pinker than John Gray I on this. I suppose, yes. as in, Not as in Men are from Mars, Women are from Mars. John Gray as in the philosophy who wrote Straw Dogs, which is <laughs> a lot close to those kind of... I mean, that's that's why I like J.G. Ballard, though, because I think J.G. Ballard really does muck around with... They're not dystopias as such. Mm-hmm. They're confusions of technology. So people get all these things and then suddenly they do become Lord of the Flies. But sometimes by the end of it, they're kind of quite happy that they've cannibalized a lot of people. Uh, you know, so it, there's almost a happy ending with the cannibalization. Delicious. Yeah. I mean, and new recipes that haven't yeah. been tried very much. Yeah, no, it's good. Do you, um, I don't know how much longer we've got. How much longer we've got? Just because I know you've got another thing. Right. Okay. I'm going to, oh, we've got loads to get through. Uh, oh, okay. Right, I want to ask you now the moon. We have to talk about this because it's uh, a large body. But, it's in orbit around but, Earth. Uh, it's, um, but is it? Not if you've read Our Spaceship Moon. I should have bought you a copy of that. Well, I did it's... see that one Doctor Who episode where it turns out to be an egg that something hatches from. And I was very angry when I watched that episode because, first off, that was also the plot of a Super Friends episode from, like, 1971. So I'm like, come on. And then, second off, the thing, like, the, it hatched and then it left and then it laid another egg that's exactly the same as the moon. I'm like, where the hell did the mass come from? <laughs> this is, I'm amazed you've got through the hot every single episode because that, that, that's, yeah. a, that's a reasonably, uh, reg- but the, the, our spaceship moon is a nonfiction book. It's not nonfiction. I mean, it's classed as nonfiction. They, the writers, I think, believe it's nonfiction. I yes. believe it's very fictional. I should have brought you a copy. I saw a copy of it again the other day. And, uh, you know, that whole idea was this just, is this a, U- a UFO, basically? The moon. Uh, the moon. It's just, uh, okay. Um, yeah. But that's very not well what I wanted to talk about, which is. Okay. Why do you think it was? I, w- I want to briefly talk about space exploration because you know Mars is now exciting people. Mm-hmm. But will human beings get as rapidly bored with Mars as they did with the Moon? Because I think one of the saddest things to me, and we're recording this, I should mention, we're recording this a, a couple of days after John Young, Apollo yeah. sixteen, died. My favorite astronaut. And he is, you know, we have very few human beings now who have stood on. Well, a, a, another, you know, a, a natural object beyond the planet Earth. I go back to my economic argument, which is that um, people don't people are not going to move anywhere or colonize anything unless there's an economic reason to do it. The Apollo program was a flags and footprints kind of, you know, show that we can do it. And I do think it's one of the greatest accomplishments in human history. But there is still there was at the time and now is still no economic reason to go to the moon. Nor will there be one to go to Mars, uh, you know, at this current rate. So if we were to do another Flags and Footprints mission to Mars, then people would be very excited about it for a little while. and It it would go the way of the Apollo program. I really honestly believe it would. It would be like, okay, we did it. We showed that we could do it. Now we're done. Unless you can show me a way to make money, I don't see any reason to go back. Let's, let's talk a little bit about you said John Young is your, is your uh, favorite of the Apollo astronauts. Yeah, what was it all particularly uh, inspiring about him? Well, it's a whole bunch of things. He's everything an astronaut is supposed to be. Uh, he was. I mean, it's still hard for me to talk about him in the past tense. As of the time that we're uh, recording this, he's, he's, he just passed away yesterday, I think, yeah, or the day before, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, he, he, he had been very ill for quite a while. So it's not it didn't come as a surprise. But um, he was uh, first off, he was uh, the only astronaut who was part of the Mercury program, Gemini program, Apollo program and space shuttle program. Or no, he wasn't in Mercury. Sorry. Gemini, Apollo and space shuttle. Um, He was the commander of the first space shuttle mission, Columbia STS-1 was the name of the mission. Uh, He had this really dry sense of humor and sense of duty to him. um, one of my favorite bits of trivia about him is um, when they're launching, uh, they, all, all the astronauts have biomonitors on. They can check, you know, temperature, pulse, heart rate, all that stuff like that. And you can see, like, you, you can go online and look at it, the uh, heart rate monitors of Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins on, like, at the time Apollo 11 is launching. And their BPMs go up to, like, 180. I mean, of course, you're in a rocket. Of course, you're going to bump, 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 bump. You know, you're all, whoa, yeah, the adrenaline pumps. Uh, John Young's uh, heart rate on Apollo 16 never got above 70 during his launch. He's like, yep, on a rocket. 
going on. <laughs> just cool as a mountain lake, right? Then also, just he had this wry sense of humor slash duty. The, uh, the space shuttle was the first and so far only and probably will always be the only space, you know, manned launch system that had no abort mechanism. Like, um, you know, if uh, the Apollo program, it, they could abort. They could jettison the crew compartment from the rocket and then go land if something went wrong and launch. And that's the ca- been the case for everything. Um, uh, except the space shuttle. It had no ejection. It had nothing. And so there was a system called like a, a short abort uh, procedure. The idea was if you get high enough, then you abort by detaching and flying the shuttle down to an emergency landing site. But there's a certain range of altitudes from like sea level up to a certain height where it is very unlikely that you would be able to land the shuttle because it's basically a glider. And um, so... Uh, John Young, but there's this whole procedure for doing it of like what you have to do. And so like, but it's a very low probability of survival. So John Young called that procedure, uh, quote, um, kill, uh, was it killing time while waiting to die? <laughs> and that's kind of his approach to <laughs> just like, well, hope this doesn't happen because if it does, we're going to die. And and Charlie Duke and him as well, they really looked like they had fun when they were on the moon, didn't they? I mean, yeah. too much fun. That bit where they tried to do, because it was the Olympics, wasn't it, back on Earth, I think, when they were up there. Oh, was it? I think it was, yeah. It was well, ni- 1972. Six... And uh, I, as far as I, I, I okay. think, they, they started deciding they would do their own little moon Olympics. But at oh. one point, Charlie Duke, I think, landed, literally ended up going and not exactly crashing down, but landing with as much weight as you can on his back, nearly damaging all the equipment. And that's when yeah. I think NASA went, yeah, 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 that's enough for you to doing yeah. the Olympics on the moon now. Yeah. But you you really get the sense that the, the the communication of that excitement. Oh, yeah. Well, he also did all sorts of like tearing around in the rover. There's a lot of, uh, of John Young, like just driving the rover around. They wanted him to test, like almost like testing an, a new car. Like they wanted him to test the extremes of the rover, like, doing like peeling out and doing donuts and <laughs> just all sorts of stuff and it's pretty fun there was a great charlie duke has a fantastic story about this kind of twilight zone episode dream he had do you know about this no I don't before know this. he was he, he then went, you know he obviously that's your whole life and he said he had this dream before they went to the moon that john young and him were driving around uh and they said can we just keep going for a while and uh, they went, yeah, Grand Control, that, 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 that's fine. And they're just driving and they're driving and they're driving. And then suddenly, they're driving for a very long time. They see ahead of them that there is another vehicle approaching them. Oh, that'd be a good And they meet the other vehicle. And who's on that other vehicle? John Young and Charlie Jew. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. That is Rod Serling's Twilight Zone of yes. the moon. But it's, uh, Imagine, it's, yeah, if you it's will, just... a world where you <laughs> meet yourself. But it's, yeah, John Young, it's, uh, it is a, I mean, how do you feel now about space exploration? You mentioned the idea of robots. And I think people would immediately presume because of things like the Martian that you were very pro-human expedition in space. But is, is there a bit where you feel that perhaps, you know, we, the, those risks, let's go with the robot risk rather than the human risk? Well, it depends on what you're after. Um, there's two very different uh, ways you can go. If you just want knowledge, if, you're, if your objective is to learn things about Mars or other planets or space, then I honestly believe robots are the way to go because the cost, uh, the, the cost of sending humans is far greater than sending robots, and you're endangering human lives by sending humans, and you're not by sending robots. Um, the United States, we have a lot of money. like So losing money is not that big a deal in the space program. Losing human lives is. Um, but if your objective, it, my, my goal, what I would like to see happen is for there to be a viable commercial space industry. And so, like I said, it's all about getting that price to low Earth orbit driven down. Once that happens, then you have a legitimate space tourism industry. Now you've created a new multi-billion, maybe multi-trillion dollar industry. And that's good for everybody. It's just like, imagine the tech boom of the 1990s when the computers started just coming. That is an industry that was born then and is now just a major part of all of, of, of the global economy and will be forever. So if you imagine a new industry just like, and, and the airline industry is an even better parallel, right? So if we can create a space industry like that, then that's just employment and money and, and tax revenue for governments, which leads to entitlement programs and everything. 
See, Jeff Bezos and uh, Elon Musk must love your work. Well, because I... it does excite you know that that bit. I when, have when met you... them both. Yeah, I, I <laughs> thought you you know you, you are you are part of the of, of the movement to go. Come on, everyone, let's be excited about as people are excited about yeah. space again. It seems I do feel that people like Chris Hadfield have played a major part by Absolutely. having those uh, images, having those films of what it's like to be on the ISS. Oh, yeah. I think has helped really excite people with the. And there is a, I, I think we've nearly, but one, one more thing, we, you know, being on the moon uh, or indeed being in space, the one thing that I think with anyone that I've ever spoken to, of, of the few people I've spoken to who have left Earth's atmosphere, they say that, you know, that moment of being able to look back on your own planet changes a great deal. Cool. And that's what I wonder with Artemis, you know, that idea that, human beings would be able to go on a tourist trip to the moon. But wouldn't the greatest thing not be the casino? No. It would be the fact the that you just, it would just be that you just want to go, all I want to do is sit at this window and, and look for these days. And you'll find that in the Aldrin bubble. Uh, Aldrin Park is the top four levels of that bubble, and it's just a big glass dome on top. And since they're on the near side, you can just look at Earth. And in fact, Earth is in a fixed position in the sky if you're standing on the moon because the moon is tidally locked. And so from your, the, it'll wiggle, Earth will wiggle around a little bit because of lunar libration, but it just stays in that one point. So you could even have mounted chairs in the park and that, you know, lay down on this chaise lounge and you're looking at Earth, guaranteed. Um, Andy, we're, thank you very much. The uh, Artemis so is out uh, now and it is more scientifically rigorous than Jerry Anderson's Space 1999. Even more so than that. Yep. <laughs> very much to all of you who support us and those uh, that we'd like to mention today who've been picked out of the hat to say thank you to are John Wyke, Andrew Hume, Simon Slatehome, John Lewis, Ellie Seward, Marina de Jocelyn, Sam Buckingham and Christopher, the mononym, Christopher. Just Christopher. Madonna Prince Christopher. Yeah. What we've got coming up on June the 15th is we've got Space Shambles, which is at the Royal Albert Hall, in the in the big bit. And uh, Robin's going to be hosting it with Chris Hadfield, who is such an all-rounder. Like, he really is. You really understand why astronauts are the people they are. They've got it all. I went to um, a hockey game with him. It was brilliant. Oh, I bet. Because yeah. I, do you know why? Because I bet he did it in good-natured fun, with enthusiasm but without violence. Um, we've got lots of special guests and there are hundreds of tickets that are under £10 so please don't think it's going to be like £60 for every ticket or anything like that and it's a one-off event so you should come because it's rare we'll never do it again never we're not Victoria Wood they're not booking us on our own this podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions